Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. My PTSD was so bad. I was, I was just in a constant struggle to try to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm just tenacious. You know, I just, if it takes me 10 years to do this, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to quit. That's the attitude I have. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Hello, this is Bob Bach, and welcome to another conversation in the Stigma Free Zone podcast. The mission of our podcast is to use dialogue to assist veterans and their family members make the journey from military life and culture to civilian life and culture. Our guest today is Dan Van Buskirk. Dan lives in Milwaukee. He is joining us via his home computer for today's program. Dan is a former Marine who served with a recon team in Vietnam. He has been active with veterans outreach efforts for many years. Dan, it is a pleasure and really an honor to have you on board. And I want to thank you ahead of time for your willingness to share parts of your life with us. It's a privilege to serve, as you well know, Bob. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's start in rather general terms, if you wouldn't mind, by asking you to give us a kind of a a brief history of just how it all got going for you. Life before you entered the military, for instance, high school years, college, if there was any. Where did you grow up and, and how did all of that go forward? Well, I grew up in Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska. My I have a long line of military I, I hesitate to use the word heroes, but they were in very heavy combat and Spanish American War, World War One, World War Two, and then my dad was D Day Normandy in World War Two. So I wanted to join the Peace Corps. I really didn't grow up thinking I wanted to hurt anyone, so I asked my dad, and he said, I'd really rather have you serve your country. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to be the best I can be. And I, I went to the Army recruiter and asked if I could count what I needed to do to get in the, the Green Beret or Rangers. And that didn't go too well. He said I was too tall to jump out of a caribou. I don't know how accurate that is, but then I ended up finding out that Marines had a special forces called Recon. And they weren't well known, but they were very good. So I thought that's perfect for me. And in high, all through high school, I ran marathon distances and, and trained. And then after high school, I moved to Colorado 
to the collegiate range and I climbed 14,000 foot mountains and ran at high altitude. Did thousands of push-ups, sit-ups and everything. And I read a lot of spiritual works, metaphysical works. I felt that I had to prepare myself mentally, physically and spiritually for a really tough war. I knew I'd be out in the front. So I really worked hard, probably harder on my spiritual awareness than anything. And that started when I was a little kid. I would get on my bicycle and go from church to church to church, trying to find a way to understand God. And I I settled in on doing metaphysical work and prayer. And I included that in my daily structure, which I still do today, to pray for my family and all of mankind and to pray for the end to war. And, And I carried that through my combat. We lost 24 out of 48 men in the first two months I was in combat, and I went through a very harsh experience in initiation process. So I absolutely had to know who I was spiritually. I had to identify with that man. So this was a source of strength for you? Yes, it was, and it helped me because when you go out on a recon mission, you have to be totally focused in every way, physically, mentally, spiritually. The average lifespan on an insertion is just a matter of seconds. It's a firefight, and, and then you're, if you survive that, then it's uh, hiding out in the rainforest for several days and trying to escape their anti-recon teams. They had dogs that tried to track us down, and they, they guarded their trails, and they tried to shoot our helicopters down with rockets. Let's go back. You've touched on so many things here. I want to try to go a little deeper into a couple of them. First of all, if you can hearken back to that conversation with your dad or a series of conversations that led you to choose to join the military, this you must have held your dad in uh, really enormously high regard because you, as you stated, was thinking of the Peace Corps, but went 180 degrees in a different direction at the request of your father. Is that what caused it? Well, we were young, young boys, and we didn't know about how to form our masculinity, how to form our identity. I listened to, I had a gift for listening to an inner voice, which told me to search for my identity spiritually. That's why I thought of the Peace Corps. My dad asked me to serve my country. So then I thought, to please my dad and to be a man, I needed to be the best I could be that way. How old were you at that point then? 17, 16, 17? I would have been very young. I would have been just starting high school. The Vietnam War was, was going, and we knew that the draft process was going strong. So I had to have a plan. And school was challenging for me. I knew if I went to the University of Nebraska, I'd be flunked out on my math skills, and that's how they weeded us out. And I didn't realize I could have had options like going to a community college or something. We just didn't realize all that back then. I thought, well, I'm just going to train really hard and be what my dad asked me to be and going to be the best. I'm just going to do it. And prior to that, the attraction that you felt toward religion at such a young age? Are we talking second grade, third grade kind of realizations here? And and what caused those to come up? My mom, I grew up with a a mom that had bipolar. She physically beat me over the head with the hickory handle to the point where I had knots on my head and bruises up and down my body and welts. And I was a pretty independent thinker. So when that happened, I would just literally go out the door and start walking and running away 
from home and the police would pick me up. And back then, parents didn't get turned in for domestic violence. So I just, I just had to figure out a way to survive within that combat zone of my mom beating me. And my, my only answer was to turn to a loving God. I, I looked at God as my father and mother. And I looked at my understanding of God as a, as a loving, spiritual, principled, soulful presence within me. I've never been big on talking a lot about religion or church, but I do think what's been important to me is to have a daily practice where I pray for myself and I pray for the world and I pray for my family. That's just as important as making sure all your grenades are screwed on tight to the blasting caps and making sure your ammo's there and making sure that your camouflage grease is on your and your rifle fires accurately. That's more important on a mission to know who we spiritually are and to pray for ourselves and our enemy, that saves more lives than all the military training in the world. Did it prepare you, that is to say, the spiritual awakening that you began to have at such a young age and then cultivated on through your high school years, combined with the physical activity that you were doing, did the spiritual and the physical good health that you seem to have cultivated within yourself help you through your early military training in the Marines as well? Well, I was in a state of shock when I realized how downgrading they were to the men and how they physically at times hit us and we weren't allowed to defend ourselves. And some of the weaker Marines, they put in Chinese torture positions and ITR, infantry training, and the humiliating, degrading things they did to us and the names they called us. It was shocking to me. So, And then also when we went through the obstacle courses, when we got to the top of an Osco, we'd yell out our platoon number, 3086, and we'd yell out kill. And where my spiritual training came in handy is when I was asked to do that, I reversed that in my thought, and I said, I don't have the power to kill something God created. And, and rather than using the word God, I could say a higher power. But we had a lot of training, practicing killing ideas in our thought. They were concerned that when we got into close-in combat, we wouldn't be able to kill. So they really worked on that with us to get us to objectify an, an enemy and hate an enemy. And they also made the training pretty brutal so that we'd be able to handle that when we got into it. The standard story, if there is one, for veterans on their way to combat is the fear of the unknown. How will they be able to handle terror and the, and the physical aspects of it? It sounds from your description as if that may not have been the greatest fear. It was the greatest fear for you entering combat, what it might do to your spirit? Yes, it was. Such an interesting question. I remember I was also, I scored the highest in, in my training in marksmanship, so I was also a trained sniper. And I ran two-man missions off of observation posts down into the valleys to take out the lead elements of NVA infiltrating cross rivers and that sort of thing to hold them up. And then we called in airstrikes and artillery and all that wonderful stuff. But I remember intercepting a bunch of NVA crossing a river over to our side. And I, at the time, I was using an M60 machine gun as a sniper rifle. I could follow the tracers. And I remember them all disappearing under the water, you know, after I opened up on them. And when I got back to my my observation post up the, up the mountain, I, I had a real firm talk with myself about those are men who have families 
They have brothers. They have sisters. They have parents. You're here to support life. So take this very seriously and very humbly and do your very best to pray for your enemy and to know that we're all in our right place and we're protected by love. And I really had to work. I really had to reverse so much of the brutality. At times, it saved our team when we were hopelessly surrounded. We found a way out every time with less bloodshed. And I think I think it made a big difference. I often think that we don't sit on our ivory towers. We go right out into the into the absolute chaos and discord and disharmony and hate. We go right into it and we take that love that we have and we make a difference. An anti-fragile person comes from discord and chaos, not from everything just right and nice. How did your spiritual awareness factor into, let's call it, the belief in the mission of Vietnam? Well, it's interesting. When I first got over there, they, they didn't understand the power that they felt from me. So they lured me into an initiation and they sodomized me. And it happened so fast. I did, it was in the dark and I just thought it was initiation. No big deal. I can handle this. And before I knew what was happening, they'd thrown me down my cot and they'd done this. And I, I didn't, didn't even recognize any of them. And I was in shock because I thought if you're in a small team, uh, special forces unit, you wouldn't run into those kind of things. So they misunderstood the power that I had. And after they'd gone on a few missions with me, they understood that I brought something special to the team and we always came back. And so then, then they thought that they could see my value. These aren't things that are spoken. This is, this is what you demonstrate with your actions. And, um, I couldn't sit around and mope about what happened to me. When you get on that helicopter and you go out into A-Shaw and Elephant Valley, Leash Valley, Charlie Ridge, you got to be on your game. You're not going to make it or you're going to cause somebody else to die. So I had, I had to move through things quickly, and that's where my spiritual identification came in handy. How did this line up with even the conversation you had with your dad, or for that matter, the awareness that you had of your ancestors who were warriors and the pride with which they carried forth and the patriotism with which they served, etc. For you to experience the things you've just described to us, how did that line up with such thoughts as patriotism and belief in the mission and, and all of that? I never told my dad about the awful things that happened. I never told my dad that my whole team was shot down right away when I got over there. My team that I started out with was completely annihilated by an RPG rocket on the Laotian-Cambodian border. And I had begged those guys to take me out, but they, they wanted to go out with their original team, and I was too new in country. So even many of those guys, they were the guys who were doing these really bad things. And so they got killed. But what was difficult for me was the really good guys, the, the guys that mentored me and were really wonderful Marines, recon Marines, also got killed right alongside of them. So it was very confusing to me, and I was in a state of shock for a while. Can't be in a state of shock on the missions, but when I was in the rear area, I would think that I saw one of my friends, and I'd go up and tap them on the shoulder from behind and say hi and realize it was somebody else. That's kind of how it affects you. You're just not yourself. And my dad, I just never shared that because I think it would have been too hard on my dad. So, And my dad didn't want to talk to me about war. It was just too hard. So when I came home, I, I couldn't talk to my dad. 
And then shortly thereafter, he passed on from cancer. So it was pretty heartbreaking because my dad was really a wonderful man that I really adored. You are listening to the Stigma Free Zone podcast, and our guest is Dan Van Buskirk. Dan is a former Marine and a Vietnam veteran. Dan, you mentioned coming home and having had limited conversations, in this case, with your dad, a man that you adored, as you said. What about other family and friends? And and just that, this is a two-part question. How long were you in Vietnam before returning to the States? And what was that return like, the reception from family and friends and the um, picking up where you left off, so to speak, of old habits and, and what have you? How did all of that work? Well, I was in Vietnam there grooming me to be a patrol leader, and I was usually responsible to make sure everybody got back on the helicopter and take a head count and planning the missions and that sort of thing. And then they were going to, they sent me home after I served a year, they sent me home for a 30-day, whatever you call it, and then I was supposed to go to Subic Bay, Philippines to train in scuba, and then I was going to go out with scuba teams to check out demolitions under bridges and that sort of thing. And then after going out with so many scuba missions, I would have my own recon team. I'd be taking them out on long-range reconnaissance patrols. But I had lost so much weight from the missions. I went from 200 pounds to 160, just carrying so much ammunition. I didn't carry enough food and water because we couldn't get resupplied. We had to fight our way out if if we got in trouble. So I got my water from intermittent streams. So when I came home, I was in the hospital in St. Albans, New York for at least six months with hypercalcemia or some kind of disease. I didn't have anybody to talk to. My family wouldn't talk to me about it. I didn't have any friends really to talk to about it. So I just had to figure it out. Did you want to talk to people about it? What I really wanted to do was find somebody that understood love. I was so beaten up by hate and war and cruelty that I just wanted to find someone understood how to love and how to talk about love. My whole mission was to to love myself and to love all those around me and to understand how to do that. But through this loneliness that you must have felt while you were hospitalized and afterward, because the folks in your inner circles didn't seem to want to hear these stories from you or these thoughts or impressions, whatever you want to call them, did that create a loneliness that you then had to deal with? Yeah, I had a I had a loneliness. I had a lovely girlfriend that I had met in Colorado when I when I was in the mountains and she's just a wonderful person. I knew I knew that I had a lot of problems from the war. I didn't feel right emotionally. You know, we lost we lost half our men and I, I think that was extremely hard on me. And I broke off our engagement, and I just said, I I don't want to drag you into this. And that was really hard on her. That was my understanding at that time, that I had to figure out how to work through it. And so when I was in the hospital, I I had a kid next to me that lost his leg going up Hamburger Hill, and I I just tried to work closely with the people around me. When I was medevaced out of Vietnam from stepping on a poison plunge stake, I didn't lay around in my bed. I, I made myself get out of my bed and go around and and I supported the guys that had far worse wounds than me. You know, kids were shot in the head. They had just terrible. It was a terrible, terrible, brutal war. <laughs> That's how I, I think I recovered was just being a service. So you reached into yourself and 
and shared yourself with others, this really sounds very much in keeping with the spiritual awareness that you possessed as, a, as an individual. Yeah, I tried to hold my thoughts to the enduring, the good, and the true. And I tried to catch the false thoughts of survival guilt and hatred and anything that would diminish me or anyone else from being the, the wonderful people that we truly are. I tried to catch those. I tried to get quicker and quicker at catching those thoughts before they wreaked havoc on me or anybody else. And I did not want to be a combat Marine. I, I could have come back and stayed in recon and could have been redeployed and, and that sort of thing. But I knew I knew I couldn't continue the killing process. I had to work out of it. I worked in factories until I could get myself in a position to go to college. And then I got my degrees in sociology, anthropology, and women's studies to try to recreate myself and or just be who I truly was rather than who I was trained to be. During the time that you were going through these realizations, etc., what was your reception like from, let me call it, society at large, the fellow students at college or fellow workers in the factory setting? How were you received by those people around you casually? Did you tell them you were a veteran? Did they figure it out for themselves? How do they treat you? I don't think I ever told people I was a veteran because I was struggling so much mentally. I failed at a lot of jobs. I probably had over 20 jobs. And I failed in college. I mean, I, I couldn't pass basic basket weaving if I tried, you know, and it was humiliating to realize that I couldn't figure anything out. I couldn't connect the dots. My PTSD was so bad. I was, I was just in a constant struggle to try to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm just tenacious. You know, I just, if it takes me 10 years to do this, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to quit. That's the attitude I had. But I didn't have, I didn't have anyone to talk to. People, people can't possibly understand the brutality of war. This is an extreme, as you well know, that's beyond anything civilization can understand. What about emotions such as anger or, or, Anger to the max, if you will, rage. Did you experience? Did you experience that? When I when I wasn't in tune with who I really am, I had a lot of anger and rage. Yeah, I I was very very angry. And who were you angry at? Myself. Hmm. I came back and I was managing a restaurant. I went out to check my car in the dead of winter, and I came back in. I saw two two men in there that shouldn't have been in there because the restaurant was closed and. Uh, I saw the shadows and I asked them to leave and they didn't leave. So I ended up getting in a fight with them. I threw one up against the wall locker and I was going after the other guy and they, they shot me, drugged me up to the safe and I was losing too much blood to open up the safe. And I said, you know, you guys need to keep your head on your shoulders because there's a policeman right outside. And they, they went out the back door and I had a 300 Savage rifle. The business owner and myself, we, we were preparing for hunting. I could have shot them going out the back, and I said, no, I'm not doing war anymore. I'm done with it. And they, they killed that policeman. They shot him in a squad car. And being a, a young kid that didn't know any better, I, I blamed myself for the next 20 years that I allowed them to do that. And I can still remember seeing their tracks off in the snow, being interviewed by the FBI that I don't think I ever caught them because they had stockings over their heads, so I couldn't recognize them. Yeah, I had a lot, a lot of growth. I had to go through a lot of learning, a lot of discipline to get through all that. It really shattered me. 
How old were you at the time that this holdup gone bad happened? I turned 19 in Vietnam, and then when I came home, that happened a couple of years later, so I was in my early 20s. You mentioned it was 20 years before things began to change. What happened in that 20-year period with these feelings and thoughts and emotions that you had brought back from combat and subsequent to that? Where did they go? Well, like I said, I, I, I worked every day with prayer and metaphysics and identifying myself and praying for man and mankind. And, and with that body of work, eventually you get through things. And I read it all go, well, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of failure. There's a lot of falling on your face and you had to get back up again. And I think one of the things that helped me after about 30 years, because we didn't have a clue, you know, for the first 30 years, nobody knew anything about PTSD. And I was diagnosed with a shell shock when I came home. I started going to vet meetings, PTSD groups. And I think that was the start of the turnaround because I was able to talk to vets that had been going through this 10 years prior to me getting help. And by talking to other vets, that really helped me a lot. Were you surprised to find kindred souls? I'm sure I was because I didn't know anything about that. I, I had never experienced that. And, and I clung to it. I, 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 was, I think one of the reasons I got better is I had a tremendous drive inside to get better, to grow. I had a tremendous curiosity about how to get healthy and how to improve my life. And so, and I got married in, in 75 and we grew a lot together, raised three, three children. That helps with growth. But if I had to do it over again, I never would have gotten married at 25 coming out of a war. You know, if I had, if I had, <laughs> if, if I had that wisdom that we need when we were young, I would have waited till I was 30 and had my degree and had a career figured out. But it was, it was survival. It was survival all those years. What did you do for a living then? Well, I managed college food service. I created the, for the first time, I created a production process for them to manage costs. I created all the cycle menus and menus. I created international dishes, vegan dishes, vegetarian dishes, the whole works. And I've supervised the, our help for many years. I'm fascinated by the supervision aspect of this. So you, throughout your working life, you continued to be a leader, didn't you? Yeah, and I, and I led in a totally different way. And my leading was not to correct people or micromanage them or do what I experienced in the Marine Corps, humiliate them. If I had someone that wasn't doing something right, I wouldn't even correct them on the spot. I'd wait till the next day, talk it over with them, and come up with a plan. Either I'd train them more or I'd move them to a better position where they could be successful. But that's how I gained the respect of my employees. And during this time, during your career life, so to speak, you continued your connections with veterans, did you not? The outreach with them? Yeah. In 2007, I came up with the idea that I wanted to play the guitar. And then after doing that with Patrick Nettesheim, my guitar teacher, I asked him if we could take our guitars into the VA and play for the vets that were flat on their back in the spinal cord unit to give them something to look forward to. And uh, out of that came Guitars for Vets. We didn't have a guitar to our name 
and and now we've given away thousands of free lessons and guitars to veterans who went through going through a program because I feel if we're playing a, a note that's not harmonious on the guitar, we don't sit around and act like victims over and feel sorry for ourselves. We just simply change the placement of our hand on our chords and we have harmony. And it's the same thing with the work that we do inside of ourselves. If there is a disharmonious thought coming to us telling us that we're not enough or we're not good enough or we should feel guilty about something or that we're an awful person or that we're a failure, we don't spend a lifetime listening to that. We try to correct it as we go so we can have harmony in our life. So guitars for vets really became a metaphor, it sounds like, for much of the recovery process. Replacing disharmony of survival guilt with the harmony of who we really are. And nothing can take that away from us. Not war, not hatred, not racism, not sexism. Nothing can take away from us who we intrinsically are. And it's our responsibility to each other to learn how to define that within ourselves and to express it. The notion that there are forces that are life-giving and that are positive and, and moving forward in healthy ways, those notions, do they come as a surprise or in some cases even a shock to certain veterans that you've come to know that have experienced trauma from combat and war? What I've experienced with the vets that have been in the worst kind of combat and have suffered mentally and physically from it is that out of the worst chaos and discord and, and harmony and hate and violence and pain comes the most gracious, most empathetic, most loving, most trustworthy, most courageous, most wonderful people. They had to walk over the hot coals to get that way. I just see that in all the, all the veterans that have been through combat. So do those relationships then become affirming and life-giving to you? Absolutely. And it's, it's like having, I, I was an only child, so it's like having true brothers. You know, they're, we, we don't have any reservation about telling each other how much we love each other. And it's very special. And I'm, I'm guarded against doing too much storytelling. We need to grow out of our stories and be who we really are. But the brutal stories that we come from help us grow in awareness and empathy for all beings, where we have an aware, awareness of all beings. And it's possible, no matter what the circumstances or conditions are around us. And in a war, it will protect you. I get the feeling that your, your daily walks with your dog is Folger. Is that correct? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I get the feeling that your daily walks with Folger are for more than just exercise. Is that a pretty good guess on my part? <laughs> That's another whole story. Back in uh, 2016, I started the organization called Haven, Hounds and Vets Empowered Now. And Linda Bobbitt is a wonderful trainer, and she lost her, her brother to uh, suicide from the Vietnam War. So she's very, very aware and loving with vets. And Linda gets dogs out of the Humane Society and helps the vets understand how to train them to be service dogs at absolutely no cost to the vets if they've got a service-connected disability. So our dogs are very special to us. And I think dogs are one of the quickest ways 
to learn how to be unconditionally loving, to learn how to treat a significant other and a family and kids. If we do it right with the dogs, we'll really know how to do it right with people. Based on many of the descriptions that you've shared with us and others that we know, it's fair to say that war and the horrors of war are limitless. But is it also true that the life-giving force of recovery can be and is limitless? Well, it, it certainly isn't intellectualism. It isn't being stuck in books. It's boots on the ground. It's, it's a curriculum that's invaluable. They're teaching us how important it is to support life, how important it is to be loving, how important it is to demonstrate the principle and soul and truth in our daily walk with each other. Going through the brutality of war is a great curriculum. It's better than a PhD in, in intellectualism because with the boots on the ground training we've had and seeing what we've seen, experiencing what we've experienced, we understand how to truly value life and love and principle and soul and harmony and peace. And we fight for those things in our families. We fight for it in our society, our communities, our world. It's a daily practice because we don't want the brutality of war. Dan, we have talked about just an alphabet of, of issues today and <laughs> so many things. But the one thing we haven't, I have not asked you about, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't, is what role have women played in your life and your recovery, for that matter? My gosh, where to start? <laughs> oh, my first wife had a horribly brutal childhood, which we didn't really know about too much when we got married, but she and I grew so much together. And then we, we had the, the really challenging task of, of raising three kids when we both suffered a lot of trauma from the past. And we learned so much together, like raising kids without hitting them, learning how to negotiate with kids, learning how to love your family in the right way, which we didn't have, getting our education. Both of us got our education together. And then that worked for 21 years. And then I went a few years on my own after the divorce. And then I met another truly remarkable woman who taught me that I could live in a marriage without drama that we could be happy every day and communicate about anything. It's just been wonderful for me to know that I could be in a relationship that doesn't have drama and that's so grounded and rooted in, in joy and, and happiness. And so I owe a lot to women, and, and I knew that I would. I, I took women's studies because I wanted to understand what the Marines never taught me, and that's the value of a woman. Let me ask one thing that I'd be fascinated to hear your response to, along with so many of the other things that you shared with us. The fact that this is 2020, and we returned, many of us, in by 1970 or thereabouts, the point I'm leading up to, the Vietnam experience was 50 or more years ago. Does that number seem striking to you and even somewhat unbelievable, 50 years? Well... Yes, but there is a lot of healing that comes in that time period. You know, we're able to figure things out over that time period. And I'm always kind of surprised that we, we keep getting involved in these, these wars. I'd like to see more of a sense of protectiveness towards our planet and all beings environmentally and, 
and all beings. I'd like to see us take better care of each other. With that thought in mind, taking better care of each other, are there things that you could kind of hate to use the word recommend, but what would you suggest to someone returning from combat or still struggling from the elements of adjustment from a war, et cetera? What would be healthy for people to do? Well, if you look at, you look at people that survived the death camps, the Holocaust, they had their professions taken away from them, their homes taken away from them, their degrees taken away from them, their well-being taken away from them, their source of income, everything. They were stripped totally of everything. And the one thing that they clung to was a sense of purpose. And it really doesn't matter if we go through several jobs or even several failures. For instance, if we do significant others, we are a success. And, and the way to be a success is to show up. Just keep showing up and put your agenda aside and show up. And we can do that for our significant others and our kids and our families and our veteran brothers and our community. Then we're a tremendous success. Dan, is there anything that, uh, and I know this is a broad question, but is there anything or many things that you would do differently in the period of time since you returned from Vietnam to where we are today? Well, I, yeah, a lot of things I do differently. I would really focus on, on learning how to manage my money, learning how to understand my purpose better, what kind of career fits that. I would get mentoring because it's out there now. It wasn't really there when I came home. I would get really involved in those things before I ever started having a family. I would want to be a lot more grounded in career and the financial matters. The parenting process, you know, if I had to take education courses or whatever I needed to do to understand the parenting process better, I would do that. I really think a dog, if you can nonviolently raise a dog and bond with a dog, it's a tremendous help. The kind of training that we have in Haven is very powerful. It's life. It's life-changing. That reminds me, I wanted to ask you, and let me find out quickly the when you mentioned guitars for vets and you started playing initially for those in the spinal cord unit what was your react what was their reaction to you being there and playing that music it was the only thing they had if you can imagine being a young man and going from being able to move around to having to spend the rest of your life flat on your back having any kind of reaching out at all was was helpful and it gave them hope I would take guitar players and we play like 60s music for them, things like that once a week. Then it evolved to having a chapter in the Dom where they take in the vets that have, have addiction problems and are homeless and that sort of thing. And when they came to our chapter there in the Dom, that's where they got to see people that were happy. And they knew if they took so many lessons, they get a beautiful guitar and it gave them for once, we're giving back. We're giving them something instead of taking, taking, taking. It's really to come out of war, come back here to what seems like a disconnected society and connect the dots. That takes care of my question. Is there anything that I did not ask that you'd like to add in, Dan, before we begin to close up? Yeah, in my daily practice, one of the things I started doing was I would write down five intentions every morning 
and I would say them out loud to myself. And those intentions had to have the right motive. It had to help me. It had to help my family. It had to bless the community and go out in the universe and bless the universe. So it's not like I'm asking for a brand new C28 Camaro. <laughs> I'm only if, if I can use that car to help others. And so I would, I would say those intentions every day out loud. And that's how Guitars for Vets got started. When, you, when one does that, then the universe just brings all the, resource, or all the resources you need to you. And because of the work, you recognize those resources where you might not recognize it without the work. So I still, I still do that. I have intentions I go over every day. That's fascinating. And, and I might not. The attention is what you do before you demonstrate. So the intentions help you demonstrate what you want to do. I'm not sure I get that one. Can you explain that to me? Well, if, if I'm struggling with learning how to do something, I set the intention. I intend to bond with my Labrador retriever. I intend to, to be a better guitar player. And, and then by doing those things, then the intentions help you with the goals and help bring the right people and right activities into your pathway. And then you can demonstrate your intentions. I intend to be the best father I can be, the best husband I can be. And then I'll be led to do what I need to do to grow into that and demonstrate it. Now I understand it. Thank you. Yeah. Speaking of gratitude, I am so grateful, Dan, that you had the courage to share this inspirational message with us. Your story is, it's awe-inspiring in many ways, and it's just laced with positivity. Really, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you. Your, your interview process was deep and wonderful. You really brought out the best. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. We've been visiting with Marine and Vietnam veteran Dan Van Buskirk. Dan, thanks for sharing not just some of your memories, but the discoveries you've made in your life. Our thanks to recording engineer Iris. Please join us again when Dan Van Buskirk will describe his work with service dogs and the unique role the animals are playing in the lives of some veterans. This is Bob Bob. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.